0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back.
1: Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Nobody could have felt to have been shocked by the death of George Floyd at the hands of police in Minneapolis. It sparked protests across America and now across the world, including some outside Downing Street this week. If you want to know more about the protests in Minneapolis, it's worth listening to the Stories of Our Times podcast from earlier this week, where two of our reporters uh, discuss being there and seeing the peaceful protests turn violent. But what I want to do in today's episode of Red Box is talk about the politics, obviously, uh, of uh, what this means for Donald Trump, America and the elections which are coming up uh, this autumn Uh, but there's so much more to talk about with Donald Trump so many fronts he seems to be uh, now fighting on not just the the immediate crisis of dealing with the protests but uh, an apparent standoff between him and some of the police and the military he's also fighting a war uh, with Twitter and of course he's supposed to be fighting with Joe Biden ahead of those uh, presidential elections in November so who better uh, to talk us through all of of that than uh, the Times' Washington correspondent and friend of the podcast, Henry Zeffman, who is in Washington. Henry, how are you doing?
2: It's a strange and febrile time to be in Washington. Uh, obviously, everything had been shut down because of coronavirus and there was just uh, beginning to be a limited reopening uh, in the city. Uh, last Friday, stay-at-home became stay-at-home light, as the mayor of DC called it, which meant that non-essential shops could open to curbside shopping and people could eat at restaurants outside. And that same night was when the protests that started in Minneapolis over the the killing of George Floyd really went national and DC was no exception. And so very quickly uh, sort of al fresco dining became evening curfews and the mood in DC changed very quickly.
1: Why do you think this horrific case has exploded in the way that it has? That, I mean, sadly, the reality is there have been uh, not dissimilar cases over the years in America, and yet this, something seems to have happened this time round, uh, which means that you know people are comparing it to the riots in the sixties. What 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 is it that you think that's that's driven this?
2: It's hard to say. I mean, I think the the clearest reason is is just how clear the video of what happened to george floyd is i mean there really is no room for ambiguity and i think the the sort of shocking distance between a video which clearly shows that he died because a police officer was kneeling on his neck for nine minutes and the fact that you know as that video started to go viral the officer and none of his three colleagues who stood and watched it happen had been arrested you know, showed, I think, revealed a a sort of unseriousness with which police violence towards African-Americans is taken in large parts of this country. This is kind of cod psychology, but I do think there must be a pandemic element to it as well, which is that if you've been cooped up inside for eight, nine, ten more weeks, then you see a video like this. It came pretty hot on the heels of another... Case this time not not involving the police, but uh, a man called Ahmed Arbery, who was uh, out jogging and, and sh- shot seemingly without any provocation at all by a white man. Uh, again, captured on video, it's stark brutal reality. So I think there is an element of you're you're sat inside. There's another awful case. You know if you're you know imagine you're a protester or someone considering protesting, you might have lost your job it's quite plausible in America, given what's happened to the economy during coronavirus, that you have lost your job or that you know someone who's lost their job or just generally your job prospects are worse. Uh, you know, you are alive to the to the inevitability that the American economy is headed for a very, very severe recession. And it's sort of everything coming to a head at the same time. I mean, I, I think there is an element of that. The, the sort of pandemic catalyzed the anger and frustration.
1: And presumably there was also a, a Trump element to this the if uh, with a different man in the white house being slightly more uh, sensitive to the situation and the anger that was clearly being felt the, the the way that this exploded was clearly being fueled by the fact that you know his first reaction was to s- threaten to start shooting the looters rather than uh, addressing the the core problem of, of why people were so angry
2: yeah i mean donald trump is congenitally incapable of bringing you know, where, where, there, where there is harmony, he wants to bring discord. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, at, at times, not least the 2016 presidential election, that works for him. But I don't think this is that time. I think, you know, when you're the president, I mean, you know, it, to start off with, he is an unpopular president some measures are historically unpopular president. So it's not it's not as if he's necessarily going to get a particularly easy hearing in the first place. But he doesn't he, he can't draw upon deep wells of goodwill, particularly with the with the people who are protesting, uh, as he tries to soothe the situation. But even by his standards, yeah, he absolutely uh, inflamed them. I mean in Washington DC, uh, the best example of that, the clearest example of that was on Monday night. Uh, there'd been a uh, uh, I mean the way these protests work is that they tend to start, well, the weekends were slightly different, but but this this week and the weekdays they tend to start relatively late afternoon because people have been working or doing other things. Uh, they st- tend to start sort of late afternoon uptown as it were, the White House and sort of all the all the famous bits of Washington, the monuments and so on are, are downtown. Uh, So, you know, the protests tend to start uptown and build up ahead of steam and, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of people and they walk downtown together and get to the White House. And on Monday night, when they got to a square called Lafayette Square in front of the White House and just before a curfew took hold, the curfew was due to to take hold at 7pm and about 15, 20 minutes before, suddenly uh, the police and, in fact, other forces who are not the police, which is a separate issue, started clearing the square using tear gas. I mean, uh, and rubber bullets. Donald Trump insists it wasn't tear gas, but there, there is, I mean, pretty clear evidence that it that it was, not least people's streaming eyes. Uh, so they cleared the square. Uh, the protests have been peaceful up to that point, by the way. Uh, notwithstanding that there had been looting the day before. But at that point, that day, those protesters were angry, sure, but but peaceful. And he cleared the square. uh, And at the same time, and it really was... I mean, I think we lose sight because Donald Trump is so cartoonish and because the last three and a half years have been so mind-boggling consistently. I think we lose... Lose a sense of just how crazy this sort of hour and a half was. You know, at the same time as that square is being cleared, Donald Trump starts speaking in the Rose Garden of the White House, which is obviously just next to where this is happening. Uh, And as he threatens to use the army to quell the protests around the country and declares, I am your president of law and order, you can hear in the background sort of mini explosions and the sound of a protest being cleared by force. And that is not the kind of, I mean, you know, panglossian image of America or not, that is not what people associate with uh, the world's uh, most powerful liberal democracy. Uh, Anyway, then as this speech, you know, punctuated by the sound of chaos uh, ends, Trump said, now I'm going to go and pay my respects to a very special place. Everyone thought, uh,
1: what? And I mean, you'd assume you'd assume probably meant one of his hotels, possibly.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, although I mean, as is a cause of frustration for him at the moment during the pandemic and during the protests, it is harder for him to travel to his, uh, to his golfing resorts. Um, but yeah, so then it turned out that the reason they cleared the square was that the place he wanted to go and pay tribute was a church just across from the White House called St. John's Church, where Every President for you know a good few uh, hundred years has has attended at least one service. It's a historical church. and uh, the night before, when there had been some looting and rioting, um a fire was started in the basement of that church, although it was put out relatively quickly. And uh, Trump walked out of the White House, which is incredibly rare. Presidents are usually driven everywhere in the beast, that sort of armored vehicle and he walked with a sort of uh, retinue of advisors over to that church and then, as you, your listeners will all have seen, posed with a Bible as if it were a sort of under-12's most improved uh, centre-back trophy. And uh, he held it aloft. A reporter said, is that your Bible? He said, it's a Bible. Then put it back and uh, walked back to the White House. I mean, it really was surreal. But crucially... His threat to send in the troops only hardened the resolve of the protesters, and every day since they've grown and grown in number.
1: I mean, it is just extraordinary. I mean, not not just the Bible thing alone is one of the most extraordinary things you've seen from a world leader. Never mind, you know, supposedly the leader of the free world. I mean, his relationship with the Bible is 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 curious. Uh, if anyone hasn't heard him when asked. Uh, an interview a couple of years ago to name uh, his faith he says he loves the Bible it's his favorite book I'm wondering what one or two of your most favorite Bible uh, verses are I I
3: wouldn't want to get into it because to me that's very personal you know when I talk about the Bible it's very personal so I don't want to get into verses I don't want to get into there's no no verse that means a lot to you that you think about or cite the, the Bible means a lot to me but I don't want to get into specifics even to cite a verse? That no, you like. I don't want to do that. you an I mean, Old Testament okay. guy or a New Testament guy? Uh, probably equal. I think it's just an incredible... The whole Bible is an incredible... I joke uh, very much so. They always hold up the art of the deal. I say my second favourite book of all time. But uh, I just think the Bible is just something very special.
1: So let's talk about the politics of this then. How is it... Because as you said, you know, he's historically un- unpopular anyway. Um, there was a tweet, which I think actually uh, I saw that you'd you'd retweeted, which showed that historically, at this stage in the race, Joe Biden is well ahead of where other people have been. He's like eight points ahead on average. Uh, yeah. Barack Obama was sort of one or two points ahead at a similar stage. So uh, on that level, it looks like he's having a hard time. Is it the case, as with everything in America, that Republicans who love Donald Trump love what he's doing and people who hate Donald Trump just hate him even more now? Or is this likely to cause damage on on his own side if like i
2: mean it's true that the republican base uh absolutely you know is is uh is behind the president although there are some signs that i mean it depends what we mean by the base i mean there are some signs that republican voters uh there's a chunk of them who are who are uh anxious about how the president is behaving. I mean, there has, there still hasn't been loads of polling, of course, because the protests happened, you know, are ongoing, but started relatively recently. But the sort of where they seem to fall is that a majority of Americans, well, a large majority of Americans are horrified by what happened to George Floyd. A majority of Americans support the protests. A majority of Americans are opposed to looting and a majority of Americans think that Donald Trump has handled this badly. It is not fertile territory at the moment at least for Donald Trump to sort of storm in as a law and order president and and use that to propel him to victory in November. I mean the the the, the parallel that people keep talking about at the moment uh, is 1968 when there were riots after the assassination of Martin Luther King, uh, not least in Washington DC, by the way, around uh, the U Street neighborhood, in particular, a historically black part of DC. And Richard Nixon, who was, of course, the Republican candidate in that election, cast himself as the law and order candidate. He defeated Hubert Humphrey, who was uh, Lyndon Johnson's vice president. And Trump, consciously or unconsciously, uh, probably unconsciously on his part and consciously on his advisor's part, uh, has been echoing some of Richard Nixon's language from that election. But the, the big difference is that Richard Nixon was able to point to his Democrat opponent, Hubert Humphrey, and say, this lot have been in power for eight years. Hubert Humphrey is the vice president, and this is what's happened to the country. It's chaos. Donald Trump can't say, look at the country, it's chaos, re-elect it. Doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work in the same way. And jo- Joe Biden, who you know has very well-rehearsed faults, He is, however far you want to take this, he is clearly past his prime. But he is in many ways, or in one particular way, perfectly cast for this moment, which is his sort of calm demeanour, his particular attribute of empathy, which even his opponents give him credit for, is pretty well, well suited to this moment. I mean, he released a video, an advert this morning, which contrasted what he did in the aftermath of the early bout of protests to President Trump's speech. And it was just clips of Joe Biden sitting silently in a church in Wilmington, Delaware, which is hometown, listening to various African-American community leaders talking about how they felt about the protests and about structural racism in America more generally. Uh, It just said, Joe Biden listens. And that was the contrast. And that works very well i think I think you know had the Democrats selected Bernie Sanders, who I imagine is more popular with lots of the people who are out on the streets at the moment, particularly those who are out on the streets in major urban centers, I think he would have taken a more sort of pugnacious approach in punching back against Donald trump but i, I don 't know if that would have been quite as um, i don 't know if that would have been quite as easily contrasted with a president who seems determined to inflame the the deep divides of America, rather than try and heal them.
1: Well, let's, in a moment then, we'll talk about how this might all play out in the election campaign. We'll be back after this short break.
2: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: Welcome back. This is the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Charlie joined uh, from Washington by Henry Zeffman, the Times-Washington correspondent. So, Henry, there's a lot going on here. Trump facing the, the protesters on one side. He's still having to deal with coronavirus, which is ripping its way through America. It's got the largest uh, number of deaths anywhere in the world. Um, and he's facing Joe Biden. I mean, dealing with one of those things would be bad enough how is he dealing with coronavirus is it, it one of the most, obviously one of the most striking things watching the tv from the um, self-isolation of home in england is is that the the protesters are not self-isolating and which i know is a point which the opponents have been making but is that because america feels like coronavirus has passed is there a, a genuine feeling that that's moved on or, or is that just a, a symptom of you know people are out protesting and you know concerns about coronavirus are just at the back of their minds
2: I I think I think if I mean, some protesters have tried to advance an argument that uh, that they are uh, socially distancing adequately, that that doesn't matter. Um, I think that's I think that's a bit dishonest. I mean, I think they should. I think I think the truth, which most of them would acknowledge is that is that they see the protests as more important. I mean, you know, when I've been out reporting on the protests along with the protests, you know, it's absolutely true that almost everyone is wearing a mask and uh i mean masks here are almost ubiquitous in a way that i can see they're not in the uk which i find slightly strange I mean, you have to be wearing a mask to go into a shop or supermarket or uh pick up takeaway from a restaurant or whatever here and you know they're trying to keep their distance but obviously that's that's not easy in a historically large protest um so no i mean that is that is a that is a big concern for lots of people i mean you know the people. There were there were large protests against uh, against lockdowns sort of four or five weeks ago in lots of parts of the country. And, you know, lots of people criticised them, saying they were going to precipitate a second spike in those areas. And, and, you know, clearly the same criticism could could be leveled straight back at the current protesters. Although, you know, the first batch of protesters weren't weren't wearing masks necessarily. Um, Coronavirus more generally is still Absolutely. You know, raging throughout America. I mean, last week, last week, uh, the grim milestone of 100,000 deaths was passed, which is far more than anywhere else in the world. The rate of increase is slowing. I mean, the U.S. has passed the peak. Currently, about 1,000 people who are dying a day confirmed of coronavirus. Uh, but so, you know, it is a long way from, from slowing to a stop. And then there was a grand experiment going on in many states. I mean, some states reopened uh, when it was pretty clear that they were or when it was far from clear that they were past the peak. Uh, Georgia was the first to do so. Others have been much slower. I mean, Washington, D.C., as I mentioned, had a limited reopening at the end of last week, and that was pretty much the last place in the country to do so. Because America is incredibly decentralized, you know, though Donald Trump spent weeks declaring that he was going to reopen the economy. It's really not up to him, it's up to the state governors and in some cases, city mayors. Um, but one thing that is, is worth noting is that when, in particular, Georgia and the first batch of states to reopen announced they were going to do so, people, you know, some of them renowned epidemiologists, but many of them just political opponents, said there is going to be a huge spike in these places which are reopening too soon and it's it's not clear that there has been i mean it's really not i mean some states it may well be that that's because they're not testing enough so they wouldn't know if there has been a spike you know as as we know in the uk perhaps a better measure is excess deaths but american death monitoring is incredibly decentralized and patchy so it's quite hard to work out what the rate of excess deaths has been here well, it seems to be far lower than the uk but but in some states it does, which are doing enough testing and which did reopen early, it does seem that there hasn't been the spike that some people expected. Um, One explanation for that might be that even though people can go to restaurants, even though they can go to work in an office perhaps, that people nevertheless are carrying the good habits they acquired during lockdown with them. So they are socially distancing, so they are wearing masks, they're just doing so with a bit more economic activity but you know it, it 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 does just play into the reality that we still don't know lots and lots about this pandemic and uh you know it's going to be with America for a long time yet so um, uh, the question of whether cases do start spiking again soon in some of these states either those states that reopened early or or those places where there have been a major protest this week, you know, is is being watched very closely
1: by lots of people. We should just touch on uh, Twitter as well. Another battle that Donald Trump, Donald Trump, who who, who exists almost in solely in Twitter form, sometimes uh, all of the drama being played out online. Um, Twitter took the unusual step of uh, instead of knocking him off social uh, off the site altogether, which is what they would do with a less high profile user, they took the unusual step of starting to tag his tweets, saying that they were misleading or not quite right, which unsurprisingly, he hasn't taken very well. He passed an executive order against social media firms. They've begun a legal fight back. What's going on? Who do you think is going to win this battle?
2: It, it, it depends in large part on who wins the November election. I mean, well, the, the powers of the presidency are not always what Donald Trump, particularly in domestic policy, are not always what Donald Trump thought they were. So this executive order, uh, what it does uh, is it sort of mandates a review of, of uh something called section 230 which is the provisions under which basically if someone says something awful on twitter twitter is not liable legally for that awful thing that they've said with some exceptions and donald trump wants to review that you can't really do that without uh congressional approval despite his attempt to do it via executive order um and that's not going to happen this side of november not least because uh, the House of Representatives, the, the lower house of, of the US Congress, uh, is controlled by Democrats. That said, it is a really interesting policy area which gets to the question of whether the social media platforms should be treated as publishers rather than as sort of a, a, a public square. And Joe Biden, for his part, said in an interview with The New York Times late last year that he wanted to repeal uh, section two thirty, which is the which is the crucial piece of pre-social media legislation which has sort of accidentally ended up governing social media. And so, you know, it is it is a it is an interesting, knotty, nuanced regulatory question, but interesting, knotty and nuanced are not really the planes on which Donald Trump operates. Uh, so for for his part, it was just a sort of attempt to retaliate against Twitter, who, as you said, had labelled a couple of his tweets misleading and then took one down for, they said, inciting violence. Um and uh you know the most interesting thing as it concerns November is that uh Twitter, Jack Dorsey at CEO, seems determined to continue in this vein, which is only going to aggravate President Trump further, but also, you know, it does stultify a bit his favourite means of communication, which is his Twitter account. You know, he claimed, he claimed while he was signing the executive order that if he if he if he could, if he had a fair press, he'd uh, delete his Twitter account tomorrow. And that there's nothing he'd love to do more. I mean, obviously that's nonsense. <laughs> there's nothing he loves more than to spend all day tweeting, spend all day on Twitter. But by contrast, Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg are making a virtue, a very public virtue, out of taking a different tack and sticking solidly to their to their view that they shouldn't censor anything that they that their big users say so uh you know it it is an interesting question about tech it's an interesting question about uh how it's regulated but as far as it bites on the november election uh i think it is a it is a fair assumption that we're going to get more of these instances of of twitter uh adding labels to, to donald trump's tweets Uh, and that you know winding him up
1: just before i let you go we should talk about the g7 or the g11 or whatever it is these days donald trump was supposed to be holding uh, the g7 in the us then everyone thought well it will be off because of coronavirus it will be a virtual thing then it became a physical thing again and boris johnson said he was going to go and then i might think it, it was then off again uh before putin got an invite of course russia was not in the g7 it used to be the g8 and russia was given the boot so what what if anything are we expecting to happen next week
2: Uh, well at the weekend just gone it did seem that donald trump had won round pretty much every leader of the g7 other than Angela merkel to a a, an in-person summit at some point in probably late june probably later than 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 the summit was meant to be which i think was meant to be next week um anyway rather than banking the win of winning around all these people he then on air force one as he returned from the um, space shuttle launch wandered down to the journalists area which i think is quite unusual and declared that g7 was a very outdated group of countries that he was in fact postponing the summit until september or later and that he was going to invite uh, south korea australia india and russia the hosts of g7 summits can invite guest countries as they wish uh, that's that's fairly standard practice but inviting Russia which of course was a part of the g8 until the annexation of Crimea and got expelled you know is not the same as inviting uh, you know a, a poor country to talk about development for example which is a more standard thing to do and what Trump seemed to be gesturing at was a sort of uh, expansion of the club you know suggesting that the club is redundant rather than saying this year we ought to speak to these people as well and um, and it just, it just serves as a reminder of what a chaotic force, you know, his supporters would say a, a positive chaotic force, but a chaotic force, I think everyone agrees, Donald Trump is in the sort of, in geopolitics, in the world order. And, um, you know, how difficult, because of that unpredictability he is to deal with for someone like Boris Johnson, you know, who thought he had agreed to fly across to the US for an in-person summit of the G7 and then suddenly he's having to say that the UK would veto any admission of Russia to that group. Um, And this again is one of the key arguments that Joe Biden is making, which is that by virtue of having been vice president not so long ago, he knows lots of these world leaders. He has experience dealing with them. And, you know, basically he would, he says, offer a return to Basically, you know, following the rules of the game as they were followed, uh, you know, before Donald Trump. Donald Trump supporters, of course, would say, you know, we're fed up of those those boring rules. They ill served America. They ill served the world, and you know, we need we need four more years of recasting how America does its business in a Trumpian fashion.
1: There's part of me that wonders whether we're actually this is the best possible outcome for Boris Johnson, and that he agreed to go, but it doesn't look like he's going to have to go. Two reasons. One, obviously, he was... PMQs this week, Boris Johnson was really pressured to get stuck into the issue of race in America and Donald Trump's response to the protests, and he really reluctantly, uh, it seemed, didn't really want to get involved in that. Uh, there's also the issue that um, if he went to America say next week under the government's own rules, he then have to stay at home for two weeks, him and his entourage. Although uh, quite how long these quarantine rules uh, will last is another matter altogether.
2: No, I was just saying that the the, the question of what a Boris Johnson Joe Biden special relationship would look like is really, really fascinating, and I think quite underexplored. I have to tell British listeners that the number of Americans who basically think a combination of Brexit and Boris Johnson is equivalent to Trump has really surprised me. I mean, the number of sort of liberal Democrats over here uh, who would, of course, be running a Biden administration, uh, who think that what has happened in the UK is tantamount to what has happened in the US, would be quite a big problem, I think, at least in the early stages of a Joe Biden administration, for Boris Johnson to get over that conception. I mean, the other week, Ben Rhodes, who was Barack Obama's deputy national security advisor, but is a sort of major Democrat foreign policy thinker, could easily have a big role in joe biden's administration i mean he sort of entirely casually lumped in on twitter trump bolsonaro uh and johnson and that is not i think how boris johnson sees himself but you know very crucially it is not how a uk government needs to be seen if if joe biden is going to be president i mean you know there's the immediate issues also of this trade deal which is a big part of the uk's domestic priority you know domestic Selling point of Brexit, right? We're going to have this bold new trade deal with the US. Well, you know, it looks pretty darn sure it's not going to get signed by November. So, what happens to that if Donald Trump loses? Well, firstly, the US cares a lot less about that trade deal than some people in the UK government let on. I mean, the reality is that they talk about, you know, Donald Trump mentions it, but at a cabinet meeting that was televised uh, the other week, Robert Lighthizer, who's his actual trade chief, was saying, oh, this is going to take lots of time, you know, we've got other priorities. I don't think that is anywhere near as high up the agenda of the US government as the UK needs it to be. And, you know, then Joe Biden might have different views on what the purposes of a UK-US trade deal should be. And particularly if the issue of the Irish border becomes controversial again, you know, the Obama administration were all big remainers, famously, the back of the the queue, quote, Also, Joe Biden sees himself as an Irish-American. I mean, he's he's very proud of his Irish heritage, you know, regular at St. Patrick's Day receptions and other receptions at the Irish embassy here. And, you know, I absolutely would not count a Biden government having the UK government's back should uh, the question of the Irish border flare up again and just more generally in UK-EU disputes as they might develop. So, you know, I do think something to really watch out for uh in the coming weeks and months particularly if joe biden's poll lead stays as wide as it is at the moment of course lots of things could change between now and november but the question of what a johnson government's relationship would be with what would effectively be a a sort of resumption of the obama administration would you know i think is i think is underexplored and potentially pretty difficult thing for uh the uk government to handle
1: well i think that's a really interesting point the way that the politics could shift so quickly that that you know Boris might hate being described as Britain Trump, as Tr- Trump himself described him, but uh, the relationship could could sour even more if Joe Biden gets to the White House. It is worth pointing, out, actually, we did have Ben Rhodes on the podcast a couple of years ago uh, when he was uh, plugging his book, and uh, he talked about what Barack Obama and the Obama administration thought of Boris Johnson, because Boris Johnson's family used just before Barack Obama came to the UK. he uh, Boris Johnson wrote an article in The Sun where... He basically claimed that Obama's decision to remove the Winston Churchill bust from the Oval Office was a symbol of the part Kenyan president's ancestral dislike of the British Empire.
3: The whole thing uh, blew up. Uh, Obama was furious at the time. And that grated on Obama because he was here in 2011 at Westminster, like proclaiming uh, the the greatness of the Western alliance and and. and he didn't have hostility to the British Empire because he was black, you know. Um, and, and, and so it grated on him because it was, you know, right up to that line of, uh, let's at a minimum, it was racially tinged to suggest that because he had Kenyan ancestry, he must hate the British. And what he meant that was more serious about that, because my joke was essentially, oh, they're more subtle back home, you know, in and, and their kind of racial uh, dog whistles. And Obama said he's he's their Trump. What he's talking about there is, Again, a politics that is based upon reclaiming some lost position. Uh, and, and to speak about Trump, it you know, it's really the position of the white man in American society. You know, there's too much immigration. There's too much change. These elites don't understand us anymore. Uh, if
1: you want to listen back to that, the episode was called "What Did Obama Think of Boris May and Corbyn?" Uh, from July twenty eighteen. It's worth going back and listening to that. My uh, thanks to uh, Henry though for filling us in on what is um, happening in Washington. How how is life apart from that, Henry, in the lockdown?
2: Yeah, I will. Fi- I, I finished The Sopranos uh, <laughs> with 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 um, with my housemates here was brilliant. I mean, who knew? It's not as if people have been telling
1: me to watch it for a decade. I know, I I can Um, can also confirm that Seinfeld is quite good. Uh, I think we're on about season five, and I think it could really catch on. I think people might like it. So check it out. It's a series called Seinfeld. It could be really good. But Henry, it's really good to speak to you, as ever. While you're digging out that Ben Rhodes uh, podcast, um, if you want to leave us a review on iTunes, it would be lovely if you did. Uh, We've had loads lately, which is really nice, and I haven't read any out for Ages. We had one from someone called Mountains on My Mind. Said I've been listening to the podcast for years, but I hadn't got around to leaving a review until now. Uh, but we're glad you had. Uh, seeing the pod land in my queue is a genuine highlight of the week. Washing up, changing nappies, watering the garden are never the same, which means you either do that very quickly. I know you uh, to, to do all of that in the half an hour it takes to, to the podcast. Uh, but well done for doing that. Fectious humour, murky word of Westminster, etc. That we appreciate that. Uh, Lewis London says it's his favourite political podcast. Critical without being cynical, wonky without being boring, entertaining without being superficial. We'll put that on the film poster. Uh, Lexi77 said, uh, always into this, I particularly like the light-hearted tone and Matt's way of posing questions um it's not for me to comment uh errington said easily my favorite podcast and caroline said favorite lockdown podcast enjoying the light tone, particularly in the current circumstances There's only a certain amount of negativity uh, that she can handle each day um it's inevitable unfortunately that quite a lot of what we've been touching on is is negative and particularly what we've been talking about today is quite serious but uh, if you want to uh, have something lighter then listen to the last episode in which there's quite a lot of conga music and we basically take the mickey out of Jacob Rees-Mogg and to find out more information about uh, Times Radio when it launches uh, my morning show uh, on the new station and how the podcast is going to come out of the show uh, as well you can follow Times Radio, at Times Radio, on Instagram and Twitter. But for now, my huge thanks to Henry from me, Matt Shorley. It's goodbye.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk
1: Planning for your next trip?